afternoon, everybody. Good to see you today. Thanks for being here. I'm glad you're here. Why don't you go ahead and have a seat, please? My name is Brad, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, if you're a guest today, thanks for coming. And if you're not a guest, thanks for coming. We're just glad you're here. And uh, we've been talking for the last couple of weekends now about holiness. And we're doing a series. This is the last part of our series called Holy, Holy, Holy. And so we're going to wrap that whole thing up today with just another talk about what does that mean in, from God's perspective? What does that mean from our perspective? From God's perspective, what it means is God is holy. And we just sang the song, God is holy, holy, holy. The Bible puts it in threes. When the Bible wants to emphasize something, it puts it in threes. Like if God was holy, that'd be pretty good. If, you know, he'd be pretty holy. If he was holy, holy, he'd be like, wow, that's holy. But if he's holy, 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 that's the holiest you can be. That's how the Bible describes that in the Hebrew language. So God is holy, 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 and we are holy, holy, holy. Only we spell them differently. For God, it's H-O-L-Y, holy. For us, it's E-Y, holy, leaky, cracked, broken. In fact, we have this thing in our world called sin, and it messes with us, and it messes us up, and it's about brokenness. It's about the fact that we decided to go our own way, and we got separated from God, and now every one of us lives a broken life. And some of you, if you're guests today, or if you're like, oh, I'm kind of new to this church thing, you might be a little bit, you know, put off by the fact that someone would stand up in front of you and go, you're broken. Shall we vote? You know, it's just like, oh, don't, don't tell me I'm broken. It's like, okay, well, then tell yourself. Because it's pretty, it's not very hard to kind of realize that that's what's true of us, right? God is holy, 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 and we are not, unless you spell it E-Y. And then we are certainly holy, 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 broken. In my own life, I hate it. I wrestle with it. And some of you would say, well, you're a pastor. You don't, you don't have the same struggles we have. I wish. But I, I have the same things. I struggle with the same temptations and all that that you do. And I don't like being disconnected from God. And I don't like living in a world where I go, it's hopeless for me to get better. It's hopeless for me to get connected with God. And fortunately, the Bible says that's not what this world is like. In fact, there's a prayer in the Bible that I love. Uh, it's, it's a prayer that's written by the Apostle Paul. But I figure when the Apostle Paul prays something in the Scripture and it's written down in the Bible, it must be God's heart. It must express God's heart. So this is the Bible's prayer for us who are broken, who are holy, E-Y. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, if you want to look it up. Here's a prayer from the Apostle Paul, his heart to God's heart on behalf of us. He says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now just think about that for a minute and what Paul is praying for us. Here's, here's kind of a little breakdown of his prayer. First of all, he says, I'm praying to God himself and that God whom I'm pray- to whom I'm praying is the God of peace. Now, Paul wrote this in Greek, so the word that he uses is the Greek word erene. It's the word that we get our, the name Irene. Anybody named Irene? Your name means peace. But in Hebrew, the word would have been shalom. And shalom means peace, of course. It also, it's sort of like aloha. You know, it could be hello, it could be goodbye, but it mostly means wholeness. 
God is a God of holiness. And so when Paul prays to him, he's saying, God, I want you, the God of holiness, to do something. The God of, the God of wholeness or the God of holiness to do something for my friends to whom I'm writing this letter, which includes us. God is a God of wholeness. So Paul says, I'm praying to God himself, to the God of wholeness, and he says, and God, I want you to sanctify them. Isn't that a great prayer? Well, it's only great if you know what sanctify means, right? How many of you in your normal in the normal course of your business or your work life out in the marketplace in the neighborhood, how many of you use the word sanctify at least once a week? I mean, nobody, you don't go to, the, you don't go to Intel and you're, you're in your cubicle row, you know, it's like, hey, be sanctified. No, not so much. So what does that mean? The word sanctify literally is a word that means simply make holy. Paul is praying for us, and he's saying, God of wholeness, I want you to make my friends, to whom I'm writing this letter, I want you to make them holy. L-Y, not L-E-Y. I'm like, I'm in for that. I pray that same prayer. God, make me holy. God, make my friends here holy. And then he says this, and God, what I'm praying for is I want you to make them completely holy. He says, God, sanctify them through and through. He's saying, I want them to be completely holy. So here's the bottom line of the prayer. He says, may the God of wholeness make you holy, holy, completely holy. Is that great? That's what the Bible prays for you, that the God of wholeness would make you holy, holy. How good is that? Are you in? Yeah, you wouldn't pray against that, would you? You in the back? Yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't pray against that, right? So may the God of, and so here's the prayer. May the God of wholeness make you holy, holy. And that's beautiful. But then my next question is, yeah, but how do I get that? Okay, that was a prayer that was written 2,000 years ago. Now, how do I get that in my life? How do I become holy, completely holy? How do you get to be completely holy? I want you to hear a story today from a friend of mine who is learning this process of becoming holy, completely holy. And he's a lakesider, been with us for a long time, and I want you to um, <clears throat> welcome him, please. This is Jeff Hedrick. So why don't you give Jeff a welcome? Thanks, Jeff. Tell us your story. Okay. Good morning. Uh, over the last two years, the Lord's slowly been impressing on me the importance of sharing my faith story in the hope of helping someone who might be on the wrong path. I grew up in church. I was baptized when I was seven years old, attended many of the church programs over the years. I attended a Christian school for the first eight years of my life, and along with church every Sunday, I was basically hearing about Christ six days a week. I could have told you many Bible stories or quoted many verses, but I never really saw what a genuine relationship with Christ looked like in my family's life. When I was nine, my parents got a divorce, and it really tore our family apart. My parents were now living in two separate houses and attending two different churches, and I along with them. By age 11, both my parents had remarried. My dad's new wife constantly berated me, which planted seeds of doubt and uh, low self-esteem in my heart. By now, I had little stability in my, in my life. My dad was a realtor, and he had been flipping houses, and so... Literally, by the time I was age 16, I had lived in 14 different houses. 
By the age of 18, the, doubt, uh, the seeds of doubt and low self-esteem that were planted earlier by my stepmother were now in full bloom, and my life had no direction. Then I met a man named Scott. He seemed to have the answers I was looking for, and I was really impressed. I basically relinquished control of my life to Scott. It seemed like a good choice at the time, uh, despite the fact that he was a major drug dealer. I started using steroids and witnessed an easier lifestyle through drug sales. I was soon selling weed, steroids, and cocaine. My life at 19 years of age was now carefree and fun. I had finally felt the fulfillment I had sought after for so many years, or so I thought. My newfound lifestyle only lasted six months before I was facing a potential 24-year prison sentence. Two individuals who we knew became vindictive and went to the police with information they had of our illegal activities. Well, Scott wasn't going to stand for that. I was instructed to detain them, which led to a three-hour physical interrogation, multiple assaults, kidnapping, and drug and weapons charges. I soon would be arrested and face a 19-count felony indictment. I fought my case for two and a half years in county jail. I wasn't following Christ, and, you know, I couldn't even tell you what that would have looked like at that point in my life. But my mom, who had been praying for me for years, sent me two books. The first was Born Again by Charles Colson. It was his biography of how he came to Christ. And the second was Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. I read Born Again first, only to learn that Charles Colson came to Christ after reading Mere Christianity. <laughs> yeah. It was actually quite a story how those two books came to be. My mom had sent me those two books, and she had never read Born Again. So what are the chances that I would get those two books? So I read that one first, only, only to learn about Charles Colson coming to Christ after reading Mere Christianity. This piqued my interest, so I read Mere Christianity next, and after reading that book and seeing for myself the undeniable arguments for the Christian faith, I too gave my life to Christ, thereby confirming the spiritual seeds planted early in my life. I eventually pleaded guilty to all charges, and I received a uh, plea bargain and was sentenced to 14 years in state prison. I'll never forget the thoughts I had as the bus was going through the prison gates, topped with razor wire. The first was, how can someone who had so much exposure to the Christian faith end up on a prison bus entering prison? And the second thought I had was the fact that this was going to be my home for the next five years. Everybody develops a reputation in prison. You know by who you are and what you do with your time. The majority of my time was spent studying the Bible, learning valuable lessons about how to defend the Christian faith, and teaching other inmates about Christ. Over many years, this was God's way of showing me that my life had meaning and significance, which was a far cry to what I had heard for years earlier from my stepmother. My dad would visit every six weeks or so, and he would share what the Lord was doing in my life with some of the people at his church. Eventually, some of, they asked, some of them asked if they could come visit me. After many months, they began to visit some of my friends, too, and eventually their visits turned into a prison ministry that has impacted, it's been impacting lives for over 14 years now. These people weren't pastors, and they didn't have theological degrees, but they were following the call that the Lord had put on their hearts. I firmly believe that these people will someday be among those to whom Christ will say, I needed clothes and you clothed me, I was sick and you looked after me. <clears throat> It's a rough part. 
I was in prison. <sighs> and you came and visited me. As I look back and remember the effects of my parents' divorce, the berating words of my stepmother and my own bad choices, I'm reminded of how these events shaped who I used to be. Now I can look back and see that the hand of God was fulfilling his perfect plan for me through allowing me to become wholly devoted to him, even through years of incarceration. Now I see life as God meant for it to be, and as it turns out, Life is all about having the right perspective. Thank you. told Jeff that you would give him grace. Nice job. Thank you. Uh, so you made, a, you made a couple statements that I just want to ask you, or one statement I want to ask you about. Um, you said when you met Scott, I was, all, I was all prepared when I first heard your story to hear you say, oh, I met this guy named Scott, and it was, he was the one I was looking for, and he led you to faith in Christ. <laughs> Far from <laughs> And it. that just Far went a it. different direction. And, uh, and then you said you came to the place where you relinquished control of your life to Scott. I did. What did yeah. that mean? What did that look like? Uh, that meant whatever he said, I did. And it didn't matter, uh, didn't matter what it was. Uh, you know, I was hopped up on steroids. I'm 19 years old. No clue of what life's all about. No clue of appreciation of life, consequences. Um, and on steroids, you're... Uh, You've just got an incredible uh, mindset that like nothing could defeat you, you know, and that was my that was our mindset of the time Which is fascinating because when you come to faith in Christ The whole the whole Christian life is about what relinquishing your life to the Lord, right? That's right day by day, right? So that's a great lesson for us. How do we do that every day, right? I I relinquish control of my life to Christ now most of us, I'm pretty sure, have not had the experience of being in prison, maybe Let's have visited, but have not yeah. been incarcerated. <laughs> yeah. What is it like to, get, to have freedom? What is it like when you're, when you're set free from prison? You've got about an hour. <laughs> uh, you know, I, my most vivid memory, and I, and I still picture it today, and it was the strangest thing because I had a number of people who would come to visit me, and of course, they were there waiting for me to get out along with my dad. Um, but my most vivid memory was how green the foothills were that I could never see. All, I mean, all I saw was the concrete buildings for so many years. And I, I walked out and saw that it, it, had, it was uh, February 17th. It was a Tuesday. It had rained the day before. The sun came out that morning. The clouds, I mean, it was, it was majestic. And the clouds were so brilliant white. And the grass on the foothills was just the greenest HD that you can imagine. And uh, it was just the neatest feeling. And uh, if, if there's one, one way to describe it, one word would be appreciation, mm-hmm. just appreciation. I, I remember going to a grocery store and standing in the cereal aisle. And, you know, <laughs> I love sugar cereal. And it's just like, oh, my gosh, it was input overload. I didn't know what to do. 
or, or going through the deli aisle and say, why do people need all these choices of cheese? I mean, it's, it, it was amazing. It was amazing. Yeah. But it, it, it's given me such a great appreciation for freedom and for life as we know it mm-hmm. that, you know, before I took for granted, and I know a lot of people do, unfortunately, but yeah. it's, it's been a gift for me. Yeah. Yeah. God bless you. Thanks, Thanks. so much. Thanks. God bless you, buddy. There are many kinds of prisons. There are many kinds of slavery. Tomorrow, on Monday, our nation is going to celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Fifty years ago, in 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial And he gave what is now one of the most famous speeches in American history, his speech that we call, I Have a Dream, 1963. In 1863, Abraham Lincoln signed a document called the Emancipation Proclamation. And when he signed that document, he outlawed slavery in this nation, 1863. For 100 years, from 1863 to 1963, when Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his I Have a Dream speech, there had not been legal slavery in this country. And in fact, when, when, King gave, when Dr. King gave his speech on the mall that day, there was not one slave on the mall out of hundreds of thousands of people. Not one slave. And yet the entire speech was about freedom. You don't have to see the chains to be a slave. You don't have to see the bars to be a prisoner. And the greatest freedom is to be holy, holy. When you get to the place in your life where you are holy, holy, you finally are free to be who God made you to be. And never until then. The greatest freedom is to be holy, holy, completely holy. How do we get there? If you have your Bibles there, why don't you go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I read this prayer for you, and let me go back to this and describe a little more about what Paul says to, for us and what he prays for us in this prayer. He says, uh, he says, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, I'm praying that you will be holy, holy, that your spirit and soul and body will be kept without blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus. And in other words, that you would be holy, holy, all the way through your spirit and your soul and your body. Now, let's just think about that for a minute. The point is, and the problem is, that our spirit and our soul and our bodies are completely integrated. You can't separate them. 
can't separate your spirit from your soul. You can't separate your soul from your body. You can't separate your body from your spirit. We are, we are an integrated being. You can't separate those out. And Paul says, I want your spirit and your soul and your body. I want you as an entire person to be completely holy. But every one of those aspects of our being is vulnerable to the captivity that comes through sin. The slavery that comes through, through sin or the imprisonment that comes through sin. We're vulnerable. For example, does your body ever get tired? A couple of you. It's 9 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. You're tired now. I'm guessing. I mean, so, so sometimes our body gets tired. Does your body ever get hungry? Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course, our body gets tired, our body gets hungry. And when our body gets tired or hungry or other kinds of things that say it's human, it's limited, it's finite, it's broken, we become more vulnerable to be captives to sin. Because our body gets entangled with it. Or how about this? You ever get angry? Nobody? Oh, a few. Ten of you. So let me ask this. You ever struggle with lying? <laughs> One way or the other, I'm going to get you here. <laughs> so, so, so sometimes we struggle with anger. You ever struggle with loneliness? I mean, you're in a crowded world and, you're, and you go, I'm all by myself in this thing. That's an issue of your soul. And when you're lonely or when you're angry or a number of other maladies that happen to our soul, then you're vulnerable to becoming captive to sin. You ever become empty? You ever just feel like, man, this, this thing is depleted all the way down. I have leaked all the way out. That's a spiritual issue. Emptiness is this, thing, is this thing that says you have a hole in your life and God can fill it up, but it is completely drained out. Emptiness. It's a spiritual problem. It's a problem of your spirit. And when you are empty, you're way more vulnerable to be taken captive by sin. That's why Paul prays for us. He says, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to be holy, holy. Or turn it around differently. Think about it this way. My spirit is that thing through which I communicate with God and I, can, I have a connection with God. My soul is that thing through which I have a connection with other human beings in this world. And my body is where I primarily have a connection with myself. And so what Paul's saying is, I, I pray for your spirit and your soul and your body to be healthy, to be whole, to be complete. So maybe you could define holiness this way. This, this picture of holiness helps me a ton. Holiness, as Paul describes it here, Holiness is the willingness and the ability to live in wholeness with God and with my neighbors and with myself. Holiness, the willingness and the ability, the freedom to live in a whole relationship with God and a whole relationship with others and a whole relationship with myself. And if any one of those relationships is broken, I'm not wholly holy.
So Paul prays for us that we would be holy, holy. And yet I look at my life and I go, yeah, but sin sometimes captivates me. I, I know what Paul prays for me, but it doesn't always seem to be working. Prayer doesn't always seem to be being answered yes. How do I become holy, completely holy? When sin captivates me, what's going to set me free from that? Which is a great question to ask, and it really takes us right back where we started two weeks ago in this series. And maybe if we go back to the beginning, we'd say, well, let's just alter that question a little bit. Not, not what, when sin captivates me, what sets me free, but rather, when sin captivates me, who sets me free? Romans chapter 7, this is where we began the series two weeks ago. Romans chapter 7 makes an amazing statement from the Apostle Paul, the same one who prays that we would be holy, completely holy. He makes this statement about his own life. Romans chapter 7, verse 18. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law at sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Do you hear his frustration? Here's the Apostle Paul, and, and we as Christians, we all look at him and go, if anyone does it right, it's going to be the Apostle Paul. He's got it nailed down. He's kind of got it dialed in, this whole Christian thing. He gets it. And he's going to do it right. And yet in his own life, he's so frustrated. He's like, no, whatever I want to do for Christ, I don't do. And the things I, I want to stop doing, I never stop doing them. What's wrong with me? Who will set me free from this? And he answers the question in verse 25. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is only through Jesus that we are set free. It is only through Jesus that the chains come off of our spirit and our soul and our body. It's only through Jesus. He goes on in chapter 8, verse 1, he says this, Therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life set you free from the law of sin and death. There's no condemnation for you if you're in Christ Jesus. None. And it's weird because we, some of us, we put our faith in Jesus. We said, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to give you my life. I'm going to be after you and, and I'm going to trust you. And then we carry around this guilt load in our lives. We carry around this condemnation or this sense of judgment in our lives. But the Bible says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No guilt, no judgment, no condemnation. So why do we keep carrying it? If Jesus says you've been set free, why do we keep carrying it? 
Maybe it's because we never learned what Jesus actually did for us. Or maybe it's because what he did for us never really got in here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul tells us what Jesus did for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Here's an amazing statement. You ever, are you ever looking for a verse to memorize? You're like, oh, I want to memorize some scripture, but I don't know which one. Try this one. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him, talking about Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Two weeks ago, we talked about the idea that, God made, that we made with God a great exchange, a great and terrible exchange. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, we exchange the truth of God for a lie. We exchange the holy, holy, holy God, and we decided instead of worshiping him, we're going to worship other human beings and things that are like human beings or things that are like other stuff that God made in this world. We're going to worship the creature instead of the creator. We made this terrible exchange. And it got us on the wrong track, and it, and it locked us up to sin. But in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, God reversed the exchange this way. He said, God made Jesus who had no sin. Literally, the word that, that's translated here in the NIV, it's translated, he had no sin. Literally, the word is, he knew no sin. He knew nothing about sin. It's a word that means to learn something by personal experience. Jesus had no personal experience with sin. He had no secret sin. You know, he, there, was nothing, there was nothing outwardly in his life. You look at it and you go, oh, look at that. There was nothing inwardly in his life that you could spot or that, he, that you could ever search out and find. There was nothing secret hidden in his life that was a sin. He had no personal experience with it. That's completely unusual. Totally unique. I mean, how many of us have secret sin? Oh, you don't want to say. <laughs> yeah, it's a secret. You don't want to say. You got to hit it because you got to look good. You got to do the part. You got to do what's right. You know, you, you don't want anybody to know about it. But we've all got stuff in here except Jesus. He had no secret sin. He had no personal experience with sin. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. When Jesus died on the cross, he was not a sinner. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but when Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't because he was a sinner. It was because he was sin. He was the embodiment of sin. And God made Jesus, who had no personal connection with sin, he made him to be sin for us. so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do you know who you are? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've trusted Jesus Christ, do you know who you are? If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have, you have made a great exchange back with God, or he, in fact, made it with you. And he made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might be 
become the righteousness of God in him. The word become is the, literally it's a word that means to be born again. We were born again as the righteousness of God in Christ. How do you live holy, holy? Two things. Number one, know what God has already done in your life through Jesus. Know it. Be convinced of it. Be persuaded by it. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us that we might become, be born again as the righteousness of God in him. If you want to live holy, holy, know what God has already done for you through Jesus. Number two, relinquish control of your life to him. Jeff said it. I relinquish control of my life to Scott. Good choice. Yeah, not so much, which we would agree on. But he, but he made another decision at some point to relinquish control of his life to Jesus. That's the path to being holy, holy. When Jesus gave you the right to be born again as the righteousness of God, he looked for life change for you, in you. Jesus looked for transformation in you. He wanted something to be different for you. There's a great story in Ezekiel chapter 46. It's not really a story so much as it's a rule. And uh, it's a rule that talks about how the people of Israel, when they came to celebrate God and to celebrate their relationship with God in the, in the temple during the great festivals and the holiday seasons in Israel, there was, there was a way in which they had to come. You don't just waltz into the presence of God with knowing how, you're, how you get there and even how you leave. Here's the story of how the people of Israel came in their connection to God on those festival days. Ezekiel 46 verse 9. When the people of the land come before the Lord at the appointed festivals, whoever enters by the north gate to worship is to go out the south gate. And whoever enters by the south gate is to go out the north gate. No one is to return through the gate by which they entered, but each is to go out the opposite gate. What? I mean, really, does God care what door you come into church? Does God care what door you come in through the temple? Was this a logistic thing right in the middle of the prophecy? Or was it a statement about what God wanted to happen not only in their body, but in their soul and in their spirit? He said, anybody who comes in the north gate, got to go out the south gate. Anybody who comes in the south gate, you got to go out the north gate. Why? Because nobody leaves the presence of God unchanged. You cannot leave the presence of God the same way you came. And when it comes to the New Testament, and you understand the process of living a holy, holy life, you cannot go out the way you came in. Because Jesus came to change you. He came to change me. He came to make us different. And the story of which door you come through, it's a metaphor. And some people will say, it's just a metaphor. I go, there's no such thing as just a metaphor. 
People say baptism is just a metaphor. No, it's not. It's a huge, powerful metaphor. There's no such thing as just a metaphor. And so they would come in one gate and they'd go out a different gate to make a powerful statement with their feet that their body and their soul and their spirit was being changed by their connection with God. Jesus came to make a great exchange with us. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He came to change us. He came to set us free. And the greatest freedom is to be holy, holy. And Lord Jesus, I pray for that. I pray for that, Lord, that we would be holy, completely holy. We cannot without you. But if we give you control of our lives by faith, you will make us your righteousness. And that will be a true statement, not a hope, not a dream, a true statement. Lord, we give you our lives today. We ask for that exchange to happen again today. We ask that you would make us holy, holy, and completely free. Amen.
and Mole Hill of Mississippi, from every mountainside, let freedom ring, and when this happens, when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free.